Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, November 30th, 2012. I can't keep up with it anymore. (laughs) I feel like I'm doing discernment triage nowadays. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. A little bit of a note up here at the front of the program, you know, kind of a house-cleaning thing. I, I am, like, way behind on my emails, and there's, uh, there's, in fact, there's two in particular that I wanted to get to. Um, One pertaining to how do we rightly understand um, the Mosaic Law? Why is it that Christians aren't required to eat shellfish and things like that? Um, I'm not going to answer that email directly on the air today per se. It's not like I'm going to read the email and then address it. However, uh, during today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I want you to listen very carefully to the segment that we're going to be doing regarding Robert Morris's uh, so-called principle of the first. Uh, We're going to be doing our second installment uh, of listening to Robert Morris's teaching at uh, Elevation Church. And specifically, the answer to the question that that has been raised in the emails that I've been receiving regarding properly understanding the Mosaic Law, they will be addressed today in that segment, not by email, but by topic itself. So just want to let you know that. And then I've been getting quite a few emails lately regarding eschatology. Um, I will probably be saving those up and kind of be doing one big eschatological um, topic Hopefully in the next week or so. So hang tight on those. I, you know, I, I'm falling behind. Anyway, <laughs> you know, out of sorts here. So, all right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, I, I actually kind of sort of need to get into it because the Robert Morris segment that we're going to be doing today, um, based upon the amount of data that we're going to need to cover uh, as far as listening carefully to what Robert Morris is teaching and saying, who has promoted him, um, and uh, it's going to require me to do a little bit of that. Um, That is going to be a really, really, really long segment, and I'll probably have to put um, our um, commercial break in the middle of that segment. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at my how I've chopped this program up today, and I'm thinking, I didn't slice it right. <laughs> 
that's all I'm saying. And so normally, uh, yeah, normally in, in, in fighting for the faith, you'll have a little bit of a monologue where I introduce the uh, the major theological category or, or topic of that we're working on. Uh, start off with something a little bit light, and then move into the topic itself, and then we do our sermon review in hour number two. Um, I'm going to skip the monologue today. Uh, because I, I, again, I anticipate that the Robert Morris piece will take a little bit of time. I could be wrong. Maybe I'll, I'll get it done quickly. I, but then again, when, when, <laughs> when was the last time I did anything quickly? I, I, I get emails from people. They'll say, yeah, I'm about a week and a half behind. That's like the average. The average listener is about a week and a half behind. So by the time you listen to this episode, I mean, it'll already be Christmas. But <sighs> it, <laughs> oh, man. Like I said, I feel like I'm doing um, discernment triage. It's the the only way I can – I can't keep up anymore. I literally can't keep up anymore. And there are topics that I have literally been wanting to get to for the, like the last two, three weeks. And and it, it's the, the the discernment topic of the day, the discernment topic du jour – has uh, has always risen to the top uh, above some of the more strategic t- uh, segments that I've been trying to do. So let's d- kind of tell you what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to start off uh, a little bit light. Where I got a William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse update uh, regarding Enoch and Elijah. Um, I, I got to tell you, you know, even though William Tapley had bronchitis last week, um, his prophetic swagger is still like – Way up there, and I, I mean, he again, you know, he's got better prophetic skills than <clears throat> Pat Robertson. But anyway, so we're we're gonna just start off a little something a little bit silly, uh, but uh, kind of makes the you know kind of makes a bigger point, and that's how we how you handle uh, scripture. And then what we're gonna do is we'll start into um, our extended segment that we're gonna be doing today. I'll probably have to break it into two pieces, which is part two. Of our uh, of our examination of the you know the major foundational premises and 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 biblical twisting behind Robert Morris's uh, uh, book The Blessed Life, specifically as he's preached it uh, these past two Sundays at Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is Stephen Furtick's church. And so today we're going to be looking at the principle of the first. And uh, today's, um, in order to kind of unpack all of this, there we'll have to engage in some theological precision that um, that normally we don't have to engage in this kind of rigor um, on it because so many of the Bible twisters out there they never get this subtle in their nuancing of their biblical twisting. But uh, Robert Morris is. Uh, he is no slouch in the Bible twisting category, so as a result of it, you know, it's it's required me to spend quite a bit of time working on this segment, making sure I've got my notes right, got my backup data right, you know, and have, have figured out a good a, a, you know strategy for kind of unpacking it that you all can follow along with easily and would readily see the problems with the techniques that he's engaging in. So. And then hour number two. Oh, oh man, I got a good. We got. We have. A, we're going to be ending the week off with a good sermon. In fact, it's. It, it couldn't be more timely. Uh, we're going to be listening to a Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley sermon um, on the feeding of the five thousand from the Gospel of Mark. At least got, um, Mark's Gospel's account of that. And the reason I say couldn't be more timely is because uh, earlier in the week we listened to how Robert Morris completely botched that text. And um, I thought it would be very good, to, especially in this episode, since we're you know this is part two of looking at how Robert Morris is twisting God's word, specifically as it pertains to the so-called principle of the first. That 
we would uh, listen to a good sermon uh, fr- uh, you know on a text regarding the feeding of the 5000 and pastor charmley just does a smash up job just like he always do- does i mean i got to tell you folks it um it is always <laughs> a benefit to me uh, knowing that I, I literally I could I could go to Pastor Charmley's sermon audio. Uh, he he pub, by the way he does publish his sermons over at sermonaudio.com. If you uh, are looking for good sermons, uh, there are several uh, websites that I would send you to: uh, Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in uh, Cap, uh, in uh, Hacienda Heights, California, Pastor Wolf Mueller's Church. Uh, Hope Lutheran in Aurora, Colorado. I would send you to George Borghardt. I would also send you to uh, Trinity Lutheran Church, Murdoch, Nebraska, Brent Kuhlman. But also um, to, I would also put into the mix Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. The reason why is because he has a very different style than uh, than uh, you know the, the Lutheran guys that I recommend. He's uh, he has a very different approach to his sermons that is a little bit more exegetical and a little less homily. And on top of it, he does a very good job of law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And he preaches Christ from every Old Testament text that he does. And so I think Pastor Charmley is a good model uh, to hold up uh, for pr- that particular style of uh, of preaching. And I, I understand I need to I actually need to spend a little bit of time broadening out, um, you know, the, the our good sermon stable, if you would. And so it's one of the things I've committed to as we get into 2013, spending a little bit more time going through and really finding some good pastors that I could feature in our good sermons uh, segments, you know, kind of broaden that out a little bit uh, for the very reason that it's difficult to find those. And so uh, for me, it's it's a matter of trust. And, and what I mean by that is, is that if I'm going to point out that this is a good sermon and come back to that person, then what I really need to be able to do is literally at any day randomly be able to just say, okay, I need to go to this person's, I'm looking for a good sermon. I'll go here and I I can literally just, you know, take the wheel of fortune, spin it and and just randomly pick any sermon and they're going to preach Christ, long gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And uh, once I'm confident as with that, then I can put them forward regularly as uh, good pastors that you, you ought to consider listening to. Does that make sense? Anyway, so that's what we're doing on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. We have a ton of ground that we need to cover today. In fact, uh, usually during our good sermons, I, I don't tr- make a habit of interrupting them very often. I may uh, sit in on Pastor Charmley's sermon to point a few things out in this, uh, in his uh, handling of this text, specifically so that we can, you know, I can kind of focus on how what he's doing here is he's not purposely trying to grind down the false teaching of uh, somebody like Robert Morris, but because he's rightly handling the text, it sticks out um, in such a way that you can better see the false teaching of Robert Morris uh, regarding his handling of the story of the feeding of the five thousand. I feel breathless. I feel like you, you ever you ever been in one of those situations where you find yourself at maybe running a 5k or something like that and and you never can quite catch your breath and you're just never mind. It's probably just me. So uh with that we're going to uh dive into the program proper and since we're starting off with the William Tapley update, let's do this. That's great. It starts with an earthquake. Burgess name. 
Imagine like having to sing this on that uh, game show called uh, Don't Forget the Lyrics. Right? It's the end of the world as we know it. That's right, and I feel fine. It's the end of the world as we know it. All right, so William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times, is a regular feature here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. And um, one of the, I, I, from time to time, I need to explain why he's a regular feature. This would be one of those times. The reason why he's a regular feature is this, is that um, as far as prophetic charisma goes, um, <laughs> poor William Tapley, he has none of it. And so as a result of it, it's not hard to see that he's really kind of a crackpot and that uh, his ideas that he's put forward, his handling of scripture, these are not the products of a lucid mind, okay? And so it's really easy to spot them, okay? But here's the idea. The reason I pick pick on Tapley is because it's easy to spot them with him, but the thing is, is what he does is exactly what those guys who have a lot of charisma and marketing prowess do themselves. So by starting with with somebody easy like William Tapley, you sit there and you smash your head against your against your desk and you think, "Oh, good night, poor William Tapley." But then what happens is is that after you go through that exercise, you're able to spot what he's doing wrong and you go, "Wait a second, this guy over here is doing the same thing that Tapley does." And I'd say, exactly, and that's why we feature William Tapley. So if, you, if you're ever wondering, why do we feature William Tapley? The reason why is because sometimes with discernment, you got to start with something that's easy, kind of like the no-brainer, and you got to build up. So because our audience, uh, the people in the audience are at different levels kind of in their discernment skills, we uh, we throw William Tapley in from time to time. But on top of it, he's also, you know, some of the things he says are so off the wall that... You, you, the way I look at it, you couldn't write comedy like this. Anyway, so here's William Tapley. Um, uh, those of you longtime listeners will remember what he's talking about here. He claims that Enoch and Elijah are back. They're here. And this is kind of to reiterate this particular prophetic message that he spun himself, I think, in his uh, in his uh, bunker and, um, uh, basement, which is supplied, I think, with a 10-year supply of spam. But uh, here's <clears throat> William Tapley. Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the Co-Prophet of the End Times. He's sitting down. That's new. Uh, since he's had bronchitis, he had bronchitis uh, like a week and a half ago, he normally stands up. He's sitting down. This is a new thing for, uh, for William Tapley. This week marks the second anniversary of the return of the prophets Enoch and Elijah to planet Earth. Don't you... <laughs> Oh, man. 
you know, you, somebody says something like that, you just got to ask the obvious question. Really, if Enoch and Elijah are back, don't you think somebody would have taken notice of that somewhere? And this happened just as I had predicted the year before. Uh-huh. See, he's still got his prophetic swagger uh, going on since calling the election. I said that they would return between October 13th and November 29th of the year 2010. And as it turned out, Enoch returned on November 23rd, and Elijah returned at the beginning of Hanukkah on December 2nd. So I was off by a few days on this last date. Who are they? (laughs) I'd like to meet them. Incidentally, Hanukkah lasts for seven days, and that great forest fire, when Elijah returned, lasted for three and one-half days. So you're saying Elijah is not a friend of Smokey the Bear? Wow, I had no idea that he set a forest fire when he showed up. And thereby symbolizes the Great Tribulation. Now, just a few months ago, this was verified that Elijah has indeed returned. And we saw that in that amazing fire tornado which occurred in Australia. (laughs) Man, I totally missed the fire tornado in Australia. I have to Google that. Don't know if you have seen this or not. No, I haven't. But a photographer in Australia caught this amazing natural phenomenon. But what he did not notice is that during this fire tornado, three words were spoken. I am here. What? Those words were spoken by the prophet Elijah. So he was in the fire tornado saying, I am here? Was this on an episode of Ghost Hunters? Was it an EMF? And even though that clip was shown on the Today Show and on Good Morning America, Al Roker and George Stephanopoulos missed... Sorry, EVP. Electronic Voice Phenomenon. ...those words. And I can understand why they are not attuned to the spiritual world. Mm. Now, But he is, see, you know... (laughs) He is, William Tapley, I mean, he is so attuned to the spiritual world, he can see the prophetic tea leaves being spoken to us in all kinds of sporting events, and now fire tornadoes in Australia. Paul Bagley did hear those words. Either he or perhaps one of his subscribers pointed it out to him. And he uh, made a video, and he posted it on his channel, Paul Bagley Technology, And in that video, he enhanced the audio. Now, this is not that clear. I mean, it's clear, and the words are well enunciated, but there is a certain amount of echo, and there is, of course, the thunder of the fire tornado in the background. So you may have to listen to this clip once or twice. But once you do, I think you will understand the amazing significance of this. And the supernatural quality of these words. Hardly wait. I'm sitting on pins and needles. So let's take a quick look at that clip. Please, let's do. It looks like a tornado of fire. The prophet Elijah has four 
major missions here on planet Earth. <laughs> wait a second, wait a second. I am so not tracking with you now. Okay, so there's a... Obviously, this looks like it was footage from a large forest fire from Australia. Okay, got that. And, and you know... <laughs> as is prone to happen during forest fires, you get these little uh, fire tornadoes or little dust devils that made of fire. He showed the footage, claims that it, uh, that you can hear a voice saying, I am here. Um, that's dubious at best. Um, it sounded more like, you know, the wind gusting, which is what you would expect with a little mini fire tornado going on. And so now he's shown us this, and we're supposed to now agree with him that this is proof that Elijah is back. How do you make this connection? (laughs) And now that he has verified that he is indeed here, we can look to see that all of these missions will be fulfilled. And his most important number one mission is to announce the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself refers to this office of Elijah when he said that John the Baptist fulfilled the spirit of Elijah. And here in these end times, the very first returning of Jesus will be at the rapture. In fact, the rapture could not occur until Elijah was here. Well, now that he's here, I mean, good news. I mean... Who knew he was hiding out in a fire tornado? To announce Jesus' return. And therefore... Maybe the fire tornado was caused by um, the exhaust from his chariot of fire? Now that we have seen Elijah announce here in Australia in that fire tornado, when he says, here I am, we can expect the rapture to be imminent. How do you know it wasn't Elvis? Now Elijah's second major mission here on planet Earth is to convert a remnant of Israel in the book of Revelation. He's going to do that from within the fire tornado. Might make it difficult for him to actually preach indoors. You know what I'm saying? This is referred to as 144,000. Now let me read that passage from the book of Revelation. He's going to engage in Bible teaching here. Chapter 7, verse number 2. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. Now, this refers to Elijah because he came from east of Jerusalem, that is, from the rising of the sun. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, for the, it was, was the fire tornado east of Jerusalem? <sighs> And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. Hurt not the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees, till we sign the servants of our God in their foreheads. Okay, okay, you're confusing me again here. You laid out for me again, how on earth does that fire tornado have anything to do with the 144,000 or with Elijah at all. You're just kind of strung together all of these different concepts in what you think is a coherent and lucid teaching regarding the Bible prophecy and end times thing. 
And I don't see any way that you can actually connect these dots. I don't think these dots are within vicinity of each other at all, and connecting them doesn't make any sense. It seems to be that this is a technique used by most people who twist the Bible. You know, they just rip things from here, rip things from there, rip things from there, stick them all together, and blammo, you're supposed to have some kind of coherent, unified teaching. But I've not seeing this. So this ceiling yeah. of 144,000 Jews constitutes the remnant of Israel. Don't forget, most of Israel will accept the Antichrist, as Jesus himself prophesied, as will the Muslims, by the way. And we saw this, an example of this, in our recent election. Barack Obama appeals to both Muslims and Jews. Oh, man... In the United States. But you said he's the leopard. See, now I'm all confused. He won a great majority of the Muslim vote and the Jewish vote. Some people say Obama is the Antichrist. I am not sure about that, but he certainly is a very good prefigure of the Antichrist. Okay. It's about all I can handle. Okay, so what, what is it that we're looking at or hearing here? I'm looking at it. You're listening to it. Here's the idea. Okay, notice the technique that he used. Okay, he makes an assertion, shows you something, and then immediately launches into showing you another thing from the Bible and then somehow claims that the two are connected when they really aren't connected at all. Okay, with William Tapley, it's really easy to see. Robert Morris, when in fact, we're going to take our first break, and I'm going to try to do this in one big, long segment. Robert Morris uses the same technique that William Tapley uses. I know that sounds crazy. Now, here's the thing. Robert Morris is far more believable, far more charismatic, has better communication skills, and when he does it, you are likely to believe it. But the reason I play this segment from William Tapley first is to kind of introduce you to the technique. It's this idea of taking something, making an assertion about it, ripping it kind of from context totally. I mean, the, you know, so here we've got this fire tornado out of context. We have this biblical passage regarding the 144,000 out of context. And now we're launching into a discussion regarding Elijah and his mission and, and the Antichrist and all this kind of stuff. Again, out of context, as if all of the things are actually part of one, um, one unified theological category or doctrinal teaching. But the reality is, is that none of these things are connected. They're actually disconnected. It's easy to see it when Tapley does it. But when we come back from our break, you're going to listen to Robert Morris use this exact same technique. You've seen it now. When we come back, you're going to hear it employed by somebody who literally has millions of people listening to him and believing that what he's teaching is biblical, but it ain't. And he's using the exact same technique that William Tapley is using, but you wouldn't believe it unless I pointed the two out to you. You'll see what I'm saying when we get back from our break. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. We will be right back. we got a long Robert Morris segment on the other side of this break. You don't want to miss it. Hang on, we'll be talking about the principle of the first, supposedly. Hang on. 
Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put God. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <laughs> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief ex- weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose. Uh, uh, vision. Okay, and... okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at 
website, worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net, situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Do you find it hard to shop for the geek in your life? Well, if so, we have got a fantastic new featured advertiser for you to visit. It's Think Geek. This is a well-thought-out and hilarious gift store. And what you need to do is visit our website first, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek, and then click on the ad banner, and then a portion of your purchase will actually go to support Pirate Christian Radio. Trust me, these gifts are hilarious, from wacky office gifts to Star Trek paraphernalia to Star Wars stuff, anything that would really kind of light up the life of the geek in your life. Trust me, you'll love it. They're smart funny, and the geek in your life will really enjoy them. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. All right, we're back. Warning, out of context... Preaching creates a pretext, and those pretexts are the foundation of heresy and false doctrine. We'll, I'll explain a little more in a minute. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend, absolutely depend, upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. Have you considered giving the gift of Fighting for the Faith? And what I mean by that is this, is that... Because it's, you know, we don't have, like, well, let's put it this way. We don't make a lot of money from the people who are sponsors here at Fighting for the Faith. In fact, you'd be surprised how little we make from them. As a result of it, the bulk of, of our expenses are paid for by listeners like you. And um, if, you're, if you're growing and benefiting and really finding Fighting for the Faith to be a good resource to help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you discern whether or not what you're being taught by major teachers in the church is true or false, um, then have you considered not only giving this gift to yourself, and that's actually part of what you're doing here, but also giving it to other people by making it possible for us to keep doing what we're doing. If you don't already uh, support us financially, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, right there in the middle of the homepage, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. That One says donate, the other says join our crew. The join our crew button, all you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me say this. Um, I know what our perk is going to be during the month of December. Actually, it's not just December. Everybody who has supported us financially in the months of November and December will be receiving an email um, where, whereby they will be have instructions on how to download our newest ebook that is coming out very shortly, which is a short little ebook of 
really good Christmas sermons by the reformer Martin Luther. That's our free gift to everybody who has supported us financially, not just crew members, but everybody who supports us financially in the months of November and December. So be looking for that. I'll, I'll, uh, as we get closer to releasing that, I'll let you know. But hopefully we'll get that out within the next week, week and a half. That's kind of our goal at this point. We're pushing for that final push to get it out. But anyway, one other thing. And that is we still have our bake sale items available and uh, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and purchase your 2012 Christmas bulb to help support us or uh, the uh, bracelets handmade by my mother-in-law or the final uh, editions of the t-shirt that we still have available from the summer bake sale. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale. Okay. Warning, this next segment is going to go longer. We're, it's, we're, it, it won't be as long as yesterday's episode where we you know, we went far so far into it that we were almost done with two hours. But it's going to take a little longer than you know what time we have left in this hour to do this right. So let me uh, go ahead and introduce the topic by playing some money-grubbing televangelist update music. Here we go. Pet Shop Boys, uh, let's make uh, opportunities. Let's make lots of money. Uh, I picked different money songs to introduce people who are supposedly teaching on money. Now, here's the deal. Like I've claimed in uh, just recent episodes of Fighting for the Faith, Robert Morris is quickly becoming the like number one go-to guy on the topic of tithing in American evangelicalism and in other places that are more geared towards evangelicalism around the world. The problem is this. There isn't anything that he says that's actually biblical regarding the topic of tithing or money. His so-called principle of multiplication, which we covered earlier in the week, um, when you go back and you actually examine his teaching in light of what Scripture says, what you find is is that his so-called principle of multiplication is not based on the Bible. Instead, it's based upon his... Imagination. imagination. Not the Bible, but his imagination. We demonstrated that earlier this week. Now, in Robert Morris's book, there's kind of some key foundational assumptions and then certain principles that he teaches. Okay. Um, key foundational assumptions have to do with blessing and cursing. Okay. 
Um, and the idea is this, is that God wants to bless you, but he can't bless you unless you apply particular principles. And if you don't apply those principles, then unfortunately God must curse you. And, and, and what that means is blessing is when God is supernaturally in your corner and working in your favor. And cursing is when God's supernatural powers are actually working against you. Okay. And for Christians, apparently, there's no there's no neutral ground. And you either apply the right principles, and that means obedience to those principles, and you will be blessed. Otherwise, you're going to be cursed. This is what Robert Morris teaches in the book, The Blessed Life. Now, past two Sundays, Robert Morris has been preaching at Elevation Church. This is Stephen Furtick's church in Charlotte, North Carolina. This is not the first place that uh, Robert Morris has preached at in the seeker-driven movement. In fact, he's preached at LifeChurch.tv, Saddleback Church. You're going to be hearing uh, Rick Warren giving him uh, kudos and uh, putting him forward as a money expert, but I'm going to hang on to that for just a little bit. Uh, Perry, I said Perry Noble's church, um, you know, you know the, the, the list goes on and on and on. But uh, So he makes the rounds, and when he shows up, it takes him two weeks to do his shtick, and the reason why seeker-driven pastors bring him in is because he's the money man. After his two uh, weeks of preaching, the money starts flowing. That's what he. But see, the thing is, is that none of this is actually what the Bible teaches, and all you have to really have is an open Bible and a little bit of an understanding of the concepts of law and gospel, and you'll be able to see his duplicity very easily. So what we're going to do is we're going to dive into it. Like I said, this is going to run a little bit longer than our normal, you know, and you know, than normal here because I, I got to do this justice. But with that, here's Robert Morris from this past Sunday at Elevation Church teaching what's called the power of the first. And remember earlier, we talked about the power of multiplication or the principle of multiplication. This is going to be the principle of the first. Here's Robert Morris. You are very, very, very blessed. You're very blessed. And, uh, you know, we just celebrated Thanksgiving. We're thankful for things. But I would like to say this. I'd like to ask you to do something. And the, the Lord just spoke this to me uh, just a moment ago. And that is... Now, did you catch that? There's a reason why I started there. I could start just a little bit later, but I wanted you to hear this because there's a little bit of manipulation going on right here. Robert Morris, by saying, oh, the Lord just spoke this to me, is now basically without saying it, claiming for himself prophetic status. To challenge him is to challenge God. He hears directly from God. This is a form of manipulation that you're hearing. Is that every time you bless the food or thank the Lord for the food, would you pray for Pastor Stephen Holly? Would you just simply say, and Lord bless Pastor and his family, Lord bless them. Can you imagine if every member of Elevation Church just prayed three times a day? A blessing, and the reason is, is because uh, he's a great leader in the kingdom of God. But God's going to do more with him, and he needs our prayers. So I just want you to pray for him. All right, just just lift him up and his family. And I'm honored to be here, Pastor Stephen. All right, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 13. Okay, you need to do that. Now, remember what William Tapley did, taking these disparate ideas out of context and weaving them together as if they were one solid teaching, okay? That's just, you know, you saw it simple there. Watch what he does here. Okay, you need to open your Bible. Go to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. And last weekend, we talked about the principle of multiplication. Uh, This weekend, we're going to talk about the principle of first. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. 
his banner over us is love. We saw such an incredible demonstration of people's lives that have been changed. God changes the banner over our lives. Well, there are some principles that when we live by these principles, then the Lord helps us. He wants to help us, but he is bound by principles he's put in place in some ways. Okay, now, we've got to put down a little bit of a marker here, okay? And what I mean by that is, is that in just a little bit, I'm going to disprove this and just blow it out of the water using the, the part of the story of Jacob. Okay, remember Jacob and Esau? Okay, now listen to, let me back this up and listen to what he says. God wants to help you. He wants to bless you, but, you know, he can't. Okay, that's kind of the gist of it. Let me back this up so you can kind of hear this. Our lives, well, there are some principles that when we live by these principles, then the Lord helps us. He wants to help us, but he is bound by principles he's put in place in some ways. So God wants to help us, but he's bound by principles. So if you don't apply these principles, you know, live by them. Think of the word. See, let's do a little synonyms here. Okay. He's picking his words very carefully. Okay. He's saying the word principle rather than saying the word law. But don't you think law would be the right synonym here? Let me rephrase it. God wants to bless you, but he's got certain laws that, well, if you don't, if you don't obey them, then he can't bless you. Notice he's trying to avoid speaking it like that. Instead, he's saying God wants to bless you, but he's bound by certain principles and he can't bless you unless you live by these principles. This is about obedience to the law. Okay, but he's carefully crafted his message in such a way as to find a way to cover that up so it's not quite as bold and in your face. But this is about obedience to what he thinks are commands and laws. And truly, these are commands found in God's word, but we're going to have to do a little bit of teasing out of what, you know, when we look at the Mosaic Covenant, what is, as Christians, what are we bound to and what are we not bound to? And when we say we're bound to it, what do we mean by saying we're bound to it? You'll get what I'm saying here in a minute. So hang on. So I want to talk about principle first. So let me just make this statement before we read the scripture. If God's first in your life, everything comes in order. Amen. Okay, now, technically that's true, but here's the deal. Which of you can say today that you have not sinned? None of you can. I can't say it. You can't say it. So every single time that you sin, you prove that God is not first in your life. And if, well, things aren't going to pan out for you until you make God first in your life, then really that means that you've got to stop sinning. In other words, God's going to be against you until you obey him perfectly. Because the law demands that you obey him perfectly. Everything. But when God's not first, everything will be out of order. Everything. So we're talking about our finances. So we're talking about blessing and cursing based upon your obedience to the law. Isn't is this not the first commandment? The first commandment basically you can summarize is summarize as love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Right? Isn't this what he's just said? Make God first? Well, that's the same thing. Right? Listen in. Finances, but you have to remember that Jesus said, where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. So let's look at this, all right? The principle of first, Exodus chapter 13. I know this is probably not uh, what you've been memorizing lately, the book of Exodus, but it has great principles in us for us to understand, all right? Principles. He keeps saying that word. The book of Exodus has a lot of laws in it and commandments in it. Principles? What's that? Exodus chapter 13, look at verse 1. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both the man and beast, it is mine. Now, this phrase, it is mine, in the Hebrew is repeated a few times in the Old Testament. And I'm going to talk to you about what it refers to. But the first, it refers to the firstborn. The firstborn, he says, it belongs to me. It's mine. All right? And then look down at verses 12 and 13. Then you shall set aside a part to the Lord all that open the womb. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males, shall be the Lord's. Very similar, same phrase, it is mine, shall belong to the Lord. Verse 13, and this gets a little Old Testament-y, but just, just follow me, okay? We'll explain it. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. In other words, you're going to lose it anyway. It's very important to understand this. And all the firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. All right, three points. Now stop. Okay. Before we let him go on, we have to apply our three primary rules for sound biblical exegesis. Okay. And those three rules are context, context, and context. Now, as he read through select portions of Exodus chapter 13, you should have noted, if you were following along, that he omitted whole sections of Exodus chapter 13. Okay? So, first of all, let's take a look at the context of what's going on here. What does he mean that this is a principle? Notice he says, there's an important principle being taught here, and yet he taught the principle by taking out an execto knife and slicing out certain verses and using those and omitting the rest this should have you should have had a red flag going off in your in your mind basically saying wait a second something's going wrong here okay let's take a look at the context of Exodus chapter 13 here's what it says starting at verse 1 by the way you'll notice that where we are in the story is Israel is just about ready to leave Egypt. The nine of the ten plagues have now occurred. Okay, Pharaoh has dug in his heels and he will not let God's people go. And so now the final plague is about ready to be unleashed on Egypt and Pharaoh and the children of Israel are about to be released from slavery by the mighty hand of God, okay? And so what we find ourselves learning about here in Exodus chapter 13 are um, commandments that pertain to and have their context in the, uh, the Passover, okay? The Passover, that would be God's destroyer working through all of Egypt and killing the firstborn of everybody in whose house he does not find the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the lintels. Okay? 
you're sitting there going, blood of the lamb, this sounds messianic. Right. All of this is a type and shadow that points us to Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By the way, the way the destroyer passes over you, and I'm not allegorizing here. And what I mean by that is this, the way it is that you avoid death and destruction in hell, in the lake of fire, is if you are covered in the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. See the connection? Okay, let me continue here though. So Exodus 13, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. That's verse 1. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand Yahweh the Lord brought you up from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten today in the month of Abib. You are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the lands of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Notice the context here. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen uh, with you, and no leavened bread shall be with you in all of your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came up out of the land of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand... The Lord has brought you up out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that the first open, all that first opens the womb. Got to pause here. Notice. Robert Morris quoted Exodus 13, 1, Exodus 13, 12, and Exodus 13, or 13, 13, okay? Notice that Exodus chapter 13, verse 12, begins halfway through a sentence. He purposely omitted verse 11, and if he had put that in, he would have not been able to teach this teaching that he's teaching. Here's why, because... Exodus 13.11 makes it clear that this doesn't apply to me, and it doesn't apply to you. Okay? Listen again. Verse 11. When Yahweh, the Lord, brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, you shall uh, and shall give it to you, the sentence continues, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. Stop. Who was this written to? Who received these commands? The children of Israel received these commands. Not me, not you. And here's the deal. Christians are not bound by any of these commands. And here's the reason why. The reason is, is because in the Mosaic Law, okay, there are three different divisions within the Mosaic Law. There are three, 
Okay. And to help kind of flesh this out, okay, I'm going to call upon Philip Melanchthon. Okay, Philip Melanchthon, the uh, the contemporary of Martin Luther, uh, he's quoted in his Loki Communes uh, in uh, Martin Chemnitz's Loki Theologicae. Okay, regarding the different divisions within the Mosaic Law, and listen carefully here. There's a reason why Christians are not required to keep kosher laws. They're not required to keep the Passover. They're not required to appear the Lord uh, before the Lord three times a year in Jerusalem for the, fe- for the Passover, the Feast of Booths, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, There's a reason, because when we look at the Mosaic Law, there are three divisions within it. Okay, Here's what, here's what Philip Melanchthon says. He says, Thus there are three general divisions of the Mosaic Law, the moral laws, the ceremonial and the civil or judicial laws. This distinction must be carefully studied because even though the political structure established by Moses has now been destroyed, yet the distinction of the laws must be taken into consideration. The ceremonial laws of Moses and the civil laws are not commanded to other nations, nor are they binding upon us. They were given to the people of Israel for that time in order that the political structure might continue for a definite period of time so that there might be a specific place in which the Messiah, the Christ, should be born and reveal himself, be proclaimed, and become the sacrifice and openly complete the work of our eternal life. But there is still another classification of the laws which are called moral laws, which are the eternal mind and rule of God and are not changed by the passing of time. Always and from all eternity, God has willed that his creatures should love and fear God and that the rational creature be pure. There are also moral laws which give commands concerning the acknowledgement of God in our hearts and our obedience toward God and concerning good works toward men, as well as concerning righteousness, chastity, truthfulness, and temperance. The moral laws have been summarized by God in a remarkable way and on one small table, which is called the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments. It is common to call it the Decalogue when we are referring to the moral law, a term which can, ease, which can be easily understood without any war of words. Since these laws are the eternal rule of the mind of God, they, are, they always sounded forth in the church even before the time of Moses, and they shall remain in force forever and apply also to the Gentiles. So, to kind of summarize it, these divisions within the Mosaic Covenant between the civil, ceremonial, and moral laws explain why Christians are not required to keep a kosher diet, like Leviticus 11, uh, verses 1 through 47 teaches, uh, but we possess the freedom to eat bacon and shellfish. See, for instance, Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 19. These divisions also explain why Christians are not required to circumcise their male children, despite the command in Leviticus 12, verses 1 through 3, to do so. You would cross-reference that then with Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 30. Nor are Christians required to sacrifice animals for their sins, okay? See Leviticus chapter 4, verses 1 through 35, and then cross-reference that with Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1, uh, verse 1 through chapter 9, verse 28. 
Simply put, those particular Old Testament laws were part of the civil and ceremonial codes of the Mosaic Law and are either not binding on other nations or have been fulfilled by Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for our sins, which those sacrifices point to. These divisions within the Mosaic Law also explain why Christians are, are not free to steal, lie, and engage in sexual immorality, because the moral laws... They continue on forever. So that's the idea. Now, what Robert Morris is doing here, and this is important to note, he is quoting from a portion of the commandments given in the Old Testament that are not in the moral law, but are in the civil and ceremonial laws that were binding only on the nation of Israel. Okay? Okay, and here's the other thing that he's doing. Okay, I'll kind of explain this to you here and demonstrate it when he does it. He's going to basically claim that this is a text about tithing. This is not a text about tithing. The, okay, tithing texts are other texts, and there are particular things that are, that there's particular reasons why the nation of Israel is supposed to tithe. Okay, and the tithe, you have to think of it as like a tax that was exacted um, you know, so that um, the Israelites could, pay, you know, p- support uh, the Levites in their ministry in the temple. Okay, um, let me give you a, a passage to kind of help you out with this. Okay, um, Numbers chapter eighteen, verses twenty-one through twenty-four explains something regarding the tithe. Here's what it says: To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they uh, that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear the, their sin and die. But the Levites shall do their service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites... For an inheritance, therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. So here's the idea. The purpose of the tithe in ancient Israel was because, well, the Levites did not, they were not given a land inheritance like the other tribes of Israel. Okay? Instead, they were to serve the Lord perpetually, generation to generation, as Levites uh, in the tabernacle and then later in uh, in the temple. And the tithe was a tax to support them. That's what it was for. Okay? So the idea is this, is that what's going on in Exodus chapter 13, it's not a tithe. Okay? Instead, it is a redemptive sacrifice. It is a redemptive sacrifice. There's two, they are two totally different things. And the simple in fact, when you look at the passage, the simple fact that a person could break the neck of an unclean animal like a donkey rather than redeem it and thus fulfill this command is proof positive that this is not a command about tithing. Because you would ask the question, um, what good or use would, uh, would a little Levitical priest make of a donkey with a broken neck? None whatsoever, right? So look at these commands again. Let's go back to Exodus 13. Okay, let me continue. 
Verse 11, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, you shall give it, and he shall give it to you. you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first that opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem, and when in, in time... To come, your son asked you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us up out of Egypt. Get it? This is not a command for Christians. In fact, you will note, not anywhere in all of Christian history have Christians redeemed the firstborn by either breaking its neck or, or sacrificing a lamb. Why? These laws and commandments, the specific law, is from a division of the Mosaic Covenant that does not apply to Christians. And furthermore, what you're going to hear again, Robert Morris is going to claim that this is about the tithe. This is not about the tithe. This is a redemptive sacrifice that calls to mind um, the, the, the Passover, okay, and their exodus by God's killing of the firstborn. Okay, they were redeemed from the, the killing of the firstborn by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. All of this is a type and shadow that points us to Christ, and Christ is the fulfillment of this. He fulfills this type and shadow, and that's why this isn't binding. But what Robert Morris is trying to do very desperately is create the misimpression that this is about tithing, and that because there's a principle here, a principle that no one else has seen but him, that now we're bound by this principle, and we as Christians, we don't break the necks of donkeys or or, or redeem through the sacrifice of lambs. Instead, we can fulfill this principle by giving money to a church. But I would tell you, there is this this command given here, there are only two ways to fulfill it, only two. And it has nothing to do with money because nowhere in these commands does it say that you can redeem the firstborn with money. Instead, you must either kill it or sacrifice another animal in its place to redeem it. Money is not one of the options. So what he's going to try to do by making this a principle that allows him the leverage and leeway that he needs to create the false impression that this principle then is fulfilled in our time by us giving money. But this isn't about anything that any of us need to worry about or even fret about or try to fulfill. All of this has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We continue. Again, if you're taking notes, I want you to write these down. If you're not taking notes... Write these down, okay? Here's the first one. Number one, the firstborn must be sacrificed or redeemed. That's what we just read. The firstborn. Right, and my money isn't born. It doesn't open a womb. Only animals do this. And like I've pointed out from this text, the reason for this 
particular command given to the children of Israel was to recall to mind in the youngins of Israel their release from slavery and captivity by the Lord. Must be sacrificed or redeemed. Now, how do you know which to do? Well, God uses two examples. He uses a lamb and a donkey. What he's doing is he's using examples of a clean animal and an unclean animal. If you had a clean animal, if you're... No, no, no. He's not using examples. See, this is, that's got to stop there. Did you hear what he said? He's using examples of a clean and unclean animal. animal. No, he's giving specific commands regarding clean and unclean animals that are first born. See, this one word makes the difference. He says, oh, God's using examples. And the reason he's saying that is so that he can smuggle this into a teaching regarding tithing. This passage has nothing whatsoever to do with tithing, and Christians are not bound by this. clean animal has a firstborn, you have to sacrifice that firstborn to God. But if it's an unclean animal, it must be redeemed with the sacrifice of a clean animal. Now, I'm going to say that one more time, and then I'll tell you why this is so important. If it's a clean animal, it must be sacrificed, a clean firstborn. If it's unclean, it must be redeemed with the sacrifice of a clean animal. Now, why is this so important? Well, let me just ask you a couple of questions. Were you and I born clean or unclean? Now, What he's doing here is picking up on the types and shadows that are in this Old Testament command. And what he's doing, technically, there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, it's very good to point us to some of the, uh, how this directly ties to Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. So I'm not going to take issue with this, but he's using this then to further allegorize and make this symbolic so that he can make it about money rather than about animals. We were born unclean. We were all born with a sin nature. We were born in sin. Now I can prove it by just simply asking the experts here. If you're a parent, did you have to teach your children to be bad? (laughs) Or did it come naturally for them? (laughs) We have to teach them to be good, right? Because we're born in sin. We're born with a sin nature. Okay, so we were all born unclean. Was Jesus born unclean or clean? Clean. Okay, listen carefully. Here's what we just read. Listen. The clean Jesus had to be sacrificed so the unclean could be redeemed. That's what we just read. That's what we just read in the Bible. Legit. Okay, no problem with that. That's kind of like a gospel-ish nugget there. Okay. You, You have to remember... Yes, remember, everything in this book points to Jesus. That's correct. I agree with him. There's a reason God said what he did. And this represents giving the first to God, which is... No, it doesn't represent. See, he's smuggling this word in here. He's trying to make this a representation. that we, Now, we've got to do the same thing. Well, here, my, here's my question for you. Are you ready? Um, which of your dollars are born clean... And, and which of them are born unclean? Because you have to use the clean dollars to redeem the unclean dollars, right? Doesn't make any sense when you start looking at it that way, does it? 
is about tithing. We're going to show you in just a moment. Now, this passage isn't about tithing. Now, I'm going to back this up so you can hear what he's doing in context here. This passage is not about tithing. This is not part of the tithing commands given to Israel. Okay, This has nothing to do with that. But what he's trying to do is make this into a tithing text, and it doesn't. Because remember, you can fulfill this command by breaking the neck of an unclean animal. And the purpose of the tithe, according to the book of Leviticus, is to support the Levitical priesthood. Again, I ask the question, what good is a, bro- is a donkey with a broken neck to a Levitical priest? None. This isn't about tithing. Let me back this up. You, you have to remember, you have to remember, everything in this book points to Jesus. There's a reason God said what he did. And this represents giving the first to God, which is about tithing. We're going to show you in just a moment. It's, no, it's not. This isn't a tithing text. This is about tithing. This is why I get so upset when people talk negatively about tithing. Because I want to tell you something. Maybe you've never thought of before. Jesus is God's tithe. No, he isn't. Who was, who was God tithing to? That doesn't make any sense. Jesus is not a tithe. He is a redemptive sacrifice. The same as the Passover lamb was a redemptive sacrifice. The same as the killing of the firstborn or redeeming it was a redemptive sacrifice that points to God's exodus and Passover. No, this is not a tithing text at all. And what he's doing is criminal. Claiming that Jesus is God's tithe? Who on earth did he get this from? Answer, he didn't get it from the Bible. He got this from his imagination. There's no biblical text that says that Jesus was God's tithe. He's the firstborn. He was sacrificed so we could be redeemed. This is all through Scripture. And by the way, it uses a lamb, so we know Jesus is a lamb, to represent a clean animal. It uses a donkey to represent unclean, so we're... Okay, so... But this is why it bothers me, because people understand. See, you give the tithe in faith. You don't want to see if you have enough. You give the first 10%. You give the first portion to God so that God will redeem the rest. And this is what he's saying. If you'll give me the first one, the rest are redeemed. He didn't say, wait until your sheep has 10 lambs and then give me one. And he also didn't say, give me the defective one or the ugly one or the one you don't like. And by the way, this text doesn't say you give me the first and the rest are redeemed. It doesn't say that either. You have to redeem the firstborn. It doesn't say anything about that redemption then applying to the remaining animals. Not at all. This is not what this biblical text says. He's making these assertions, all of these, basically taking all of this stuff, ripping them out of context, putting them together as if there's some unified teaching, and they're not. And he's smuggling a whole bunch of stuff in, not from the biblical text, but once again from his... We continue... Said you give me, and that's what he was talking to him in Malachi about. He said, you bring me defective animals and I won't accept them. We have to bring the first to God. And this is why this represents Jesus, because God didn't wait to see if we would straighten up to give Jesus. God gave Jesus when we were mocking him and beating him and spitting on him and nailing him to a cross. Who did he give him to? 
You see, he's trying to turn Jesus into a tithe, and Jesus is not a tithe. He's a redemptive sacrifice, a propitiatory sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice, but he's not a tithe. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it's the same way. We give the first to God, and this is what God is saying. So the firstborn must be sacrificed or redeemed. Okay, so when, when my money starts coming out of a womb... And I can determine whether or not my dollars are clean and unclean. I'll make sure to. Well, I don't even need to. I don't even need to apply this because, well, this is part of the Mosaic Law, the part that doesn't apply to Christians. It's from the civil and ceremonial portions, not the moral. It's not binding on Christians. If this were binding on Christians, well, then it, it would be binding on us to also circumcise our sons. We would all of the men of that are Christians would be required to appear before the Lord three times a year in Jerusalem for the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. Um, there's we'd be required to stone uh, sexual, sexually immoral people and disobedient children and stuff like that too. You see what I'm saying? All right. Here's second point. The first fruits must be offered. The first fruits must be offered. Now, again, uh, you can just stay in Exodus 13, but let me read you a couple of other scriptures, all right? Exodus 23, verse 19. Exodus 23, 19 says, The first of the first fruits. That's for us hard-headed people don't understand. what. Now, the first fruits offering is technically a different offering. I don't mean to quibble here, but it's different. Although you could point to these sacrifices that are commanded in Exodus 13 as a type of first fruits, it's technically a different thing that's going on here, and there's a whole theological difference between those. He's trying desperately to make this text about tithing, and it's not. Now, I'm running out of time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap this up here by pointing you to another story. Okay, and because you remember at the beginning of his story, he made the claim. He made the claim that, well, um, God wants to bless you, but he's bound by certain principles and you and he can't bless you until you set make him first in your life. So the idea is this. God wants to bless you. He can't. It's all depending upon you putting him first and applying these principles. And yet I've demonstrated that the principle of multiplication is not actually what he teaches it is at all. When we look at the biblical text, that's not what this text said. In fact, his points that he were making were from his imagination. Pointed out clearly from Exodus 13, this is not anything that we're bound by. And he's trying to make it symbolic now that has to do with dollars. But my dollars aren't born and neither are yours. And not only that, this doesn't apply to us because this is part of the civil and ceremonial portion of the Mosaic Covenant that doesn't apply today. It's been fulfilled in Christ. Okay, But I wanted to point out the fact that he's got it all backwards. God isn't waiting on you to put him first before he will bless you. That's a flat-out lie. Flat-out lie. A clear passage I would point to, for instance, in New Testament... Romans chapter 5, verse 6, which says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
notice that God didn't wait for us to clean up our act? He died, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. But there's another passage I want to take you to in the Old Testament. And this is from the story of Jacob. And tithing is brought up in this passage. Now, I could take you to a passage regarding Abraham and tithing being brought up too. And I could make the same point. But I'm going to make the same point. I'm going to make this point from the story of Jacob to show you something that what Robert Morris is teaching is patently false. Okay? Here it is. Genesis chapter 28. I'll start at verse 1. Pay attention to God's words, okay, the Lord's words and his blessing, and ask yourself this question. Did the Lord bless Jacob before Jacob said he was going to tithe, or did the Lord bless Jacob after Jacob tithed? Okay, important thing to ask, okay? So just kind of keep those categories in your mind as I read this. Genesis chapter 28, verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise and go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessings of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother." I'm going to skip ahead here, verse 10 now. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you all... In you and your offspring, singular, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, uh, which, by the way, means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go... I will get and will give me uh, bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. 
hmm, this passage flows completely backwards from what Robert Morris leads us to believe in his book and what he's led us to believe in the sermon. Okay, Robert Morris has led us to believe that, well, there's blessings and curses. God's supernatural power is there to help you and bless you, but you need to apply and live by certain principles because God can't bless you if you don't live by those principles. What's worse than that, in fact, he's going to curse you and his supernatural power is going to work against you if you don't make him first and apply these principles. But here the tithe is mentioned right here in the Old Testament. And you'll notice something. God blessed Jacob, promised to be with him, promised to protect him, promised to bring him back. And Jacob had done nothing, absolutely nothing, except for hear the promise given by God and the blessing given by none other than Jesus himself. And the reason I say that is because the scriptures are clear. Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. So there Jesus appears to him in this dream on the ladder and blesses Jacob. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but up to this point in the story about Jacob, he doesn't exactly seem like the most godly guy out there, but God is going to bless him, just purely unilaterally bless him. And Jacob's response, now pay close attention. Here's what he says. Jacob's made a vow. This is verse 20. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, notice he expects God's blessings first, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. And the reason why he's expecting this is because God has already promised to do this for him, completely unilaterally blessing him, right? Then Yahweh shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. Now, let me ask you a question. So here we have an example of tithing from before the Mosaic Law. Okay? Could Jacob have decided to give 20%? Yeah. Could he have decided to give 5%? Yep. Was he obligated to give anything to God? Nope. There was no command telling him that he had to give a tenth or that he had to give the first fruits or anything of the sort. He could have given as little or as much as he wanted. He could have given 1%. What was the reason why he was giving? Not because he was commanded to. Not because he expected God's blessings only if he tithed. Nope. The reason why Jacob decided to give a tithe or a tenth of what everything that God gave him was purely out of a response of gratitude in his heart. God had already blessed him. God had already promised him that he would be with him. Didn't in fact God didn't demand anything from Jacob. Nothing. There was no commands no demands made upon him, just blessing. And Jacob believed. And his response was, in worship, to give God 10%. And he could have given him more, or he could have given him less, and none of us would have been able to point a bony finger at him and said he was doing something wrong. And you know what? Christian giving is the same way. Here's the idea. 
we are not bound by the the commands of the Mosaic Covenant, especially the ones pertaining to the civil and ceremonial laws. We are not required to keep kosher laws. We are not required to appear before God in Jerusalem three times a year. We are not required to stone false prophets, although it seems tempting at times. We are not required to circumcise our male children. We are not required to... Keep the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, all that kind of, We're not required to do any of that stuff, nor are we required to kill our firstborn animals, nor are we required to redeem our firstborn sons. The reason why is because those commands were not given to us, they were given to Israel. And because we are not under the law, we are under grace, we are now set free from sin to do good works, and those good works are defined according to the Ten Commandments, which are still binding for all of us. Not binding in the sense where we're required to keep them, otherwise we're not saved. But they're binding in the sense that because we've been set free from sin, we are now free, we are now slaves of righteousness and free to do good works, and those commandments tell us what good works are. Does that make sense? But here... In this story regarding tithing from the Old Testament, and it's the same way with Abraham, by the way. Abraham was blessed long before. He was blessed of God before he ever ever tithed to Melchizedek. And he didn't have to tithe to Melchizedek. He wasn't commanded to or forced to. He did that as an act of worship, freely. So here's the idea. We as Christians... Because God has acted unilaterally and blessed us in Christ and died for us while we were still sinners and has given us every blessing in Christ, salvation, uh, freedom from our sins. I mean, name all of the blessings that we receive from God. We receive them all as a gift. We now can give to God not under compulsion. We can give to him as much or as little as we want. Understanding this, though, that the difference here with us is that we are slaves to God now. We are slaves to righteousness. Okay? So everything we have, including our own lives, belong to God because God purchased us with his own blood. We are the ones who have been redeemed, purchased off the slave block, right? So everything we have belongs to God, everything. And it is God's will that those who preach the gospel should make their living from teaching and preaching the gospel. That's what God's will is. So as Christians, it is a good work to support our ministers who bring us God's word, administer the sacraments. It is God's will that they make their living from doing that. So... Since everything you have, including your own life, belongs to God, set aside an idea in your own mind, in response, in thankfulness, in gratitude for what God has done for you, um, how much you're going to give to support the people who are preaching and teaching the gospel, understanding that they're laborers in the harvest right now, and God is using them and the gospel that they're preaching to set other people like yourselves free from bondage to sin, death, and the devil. It's God's will that they make a living by doing that. So you're free to give as much or as little 
as you can afford because understand everything you own belongs to God, including yourself. Therefore, you have to steward what God has given you to make sure that you have food on the table, that you are saving for your retirement, that you're taking care of your kids' needs, you know, like college and things like that. So there's a, what, however much resources God has given into your life, you've got to budget that appropriately to make, you know, to basically get you through and save enough also to take care of those who have need, the poor. Don't just think about your pastor. Think about also those who cannot or are not able right now to financially make ends meet. This is God's will. This is what he wills. He wills, since you everything you have belongs to him, you now have freedom. Freedom. You are free to give as much or as little as, as you want. You're not commanded to do so. Understanding this, God's will that your resources are used to not only meet your needs, but to meet the needs of those who preach the gospel and meet the needs of those who, who, who do not have the ability right now to make ends meet. So that's the idea. Give as much or as little as you want. If you want to give 25%, then do it. But here's the deal. Don't tell anybody. This is between you and God. You're not doing this under compulsion. You are free to give 30%, 40%, 100% if you want. It doesn't matter. The amount doesn't matter. You're free to do so. So you know what God's will is. And you're free in Christ now at this point to do this. Go and do it. That's the idea. You're just as free as Jacob was. You're just as free as Abraham was. Abraham could have given 5% or 20%. It doesn't matter. He gave what he gave because that's what he wanted. He set aside in his heart to give. Same with you. Same principle applies. And that's why there are no commands in the New Testament for Christians to tithe. Get it? We're not under the law. We're under grace. Now, let me leave you with... One final thought as we, you know, we leave Robert Morris and then get into our good sermon for the, for the day. Robert Morris is not teaching the truth regarding money at all. He's flat out, and I, and I hate to put it this way, but he is deceitfully lying and twisting God's word and binding people's consciences to those portions of the Mosaic law that do not apply to us. And as a result of it, he's committing the same heresy that the Judaizers committed, the same exact heresy. He is not a true teacher. He is a false teacher and a manipulator of God's word. And he doesn't understand the proper distinction of law and gospel. That being the case, we need to ask ourselves a question. Why is Rick Warren a promoter of Robert Morris? Why is he vouching for him? Listen again to what Rick Warren said earlier, about a year ago, regarding Robert Morris. Listen in. Now, as we start uh, dealing with financial health, I've brought in two of the top leaders in biblical financial planning. And you're going to hear them the next two weeks as we kick off the series. I'm going to be teaching this series, but I want you to hear these two experts the next two weeks. Now, next week, you're going to hear Dave Ramsey. Everybody knows who Dave Ramsey is. He has a tele- Okay, yeah, we all know who Dave Ramsey is. I'm just playing portions of this. 
But listen who the second person is. This week, I'm very, very excited to tell you that we're going to have Robert Morris. Robert Morris is one of the top authorities in this area in America. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Robert Morris is one of the top authorities in the area of money and financial planning in America. Right. No, he's not. He is literally a money-grubbing twister of God's word. Listen, listen again. Robert Morris is one of the top authorities in this area in America. He's the pastor at Gateway Church in Dallas, a huge mega church that started just 10 years ago and is an enormous, enormous church. He's written four bestsellers. He wrote um, uh, The God I Never Knew. He wrote uh, The Power of Your Words. He wrote From Dream to Destiny. But I've asked him to... <laughs> Listen to that. Listen to the titles of those books. Just the titles of those books reveal that Robert Morris is a word of faith prosperity heretic. Yet, Robert Morris taught this exact same teaching, the the principle of multiplication and the principle of the first. He taught this at Saddleback Church. Why is it that Rick Warren has not, he doesn't even have enough biblical discernment to know that what Robert Morris is doing is lying and twisting God's word? Come and kick off this series on the theme of the blessed life. How do you be blessed when you don't have enough? How do you be blessed when you are lacking? And I know this is his life message. I know you are going to be blessed from this message because he wrote an entire book on it. Yeah, and that entire book is filled with nothing but false doctrine and false teaching. How's the answer? How do you become blessed? Well, you must abide by the so-called principle of the first as supposedly laid out in Exodus chapter 13 and the principle of multiplication as told in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But I've demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that what Robert Morris teaches is absolutely not in accord with Scripture but is nothing more than the ravings of his... Therefore, Robert Morris shouldn't be teaching in anybody's church, let alone the most premier or one of the most premier megachurches in the United States. And he's not taught at just one of the most premier megachurches in the United States. He's taught at nearly all of them. All right, we are running a little long. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian you can follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian on the other side of the break we're going to be listening to a good sermon by pastor gervais nicholas edward charmley from the gospel of mark's account of the feeding of the five thousand. perfect foil for the false teaching we heard earlier from robert morris stay tuned unless your righteousness surpasses that of rick warren you cannot be saved you're listening to fighting for the faith This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ 
and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. The holiday travel season is now upon us. It came out of nowhere, didn't it? But listen, despite the fact that it comes up so quick, the last thing you want to do is pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. That's why you want to utilize Pirate Christian Radio's longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, for all of your holiday travel needs. Visit our website first, though, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and you'll find a promo code there that'll help you save an additional $15 off the cheapo airs already low prices write down the promo code then click on the ad banner and book your holiday travel uh, arrangements uh, using their website very easy to use very inexpensive you save an additional $15 and by visiting our website first and then writing down that promo code a portion of your purchase will go to support pirate christian radio so again piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap write down the promo code click on the ad banner and save lots of money on your holiday travel needs okay we're back long into hour number two i knew this was going to happen Good sermon review coming up, though, and like I said, I'm going to sit in on this one, maybe interrupt it just a little bit, but I hate doing that. It's like adding brushstrokes to the Mona Lisa. <laughs> it seems like, how can I add to that? So rather than adding brushstrokes, what I'm going to do is pause and point out the strokes that he's making so you can see a master at work. All right, let's cue up our good sermon review music here. Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon, very good sermon, comes to us via Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley, Stoke-on-Trent in the United Kingdom, Pastor Gervais, Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. By the way, you can find his sermons at sermonaudio.com. Sermonaudio.com in the search box. Just type in Gervais and his name comes right up. But the name of the sermon, by the way, is The Good Shepherd Feeds His Flock. The text that he will be preaching from, he'll read it first, is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. Now, the reason I'm playing this is, you know, while it's still fresh in your head, what we reviewed regarding Robert Morris's mishandling of this story from the Gospel of Luke, I want you to hear it rightly preached from uh, uh, the Gospel of Mark by Pastor Charmley. Pastor Charmley is no heretic. Is a man who studies, shows himself approved, and preaches Christ and him crucified for our sins, understands the proper distinction of law and gospel, and gets what's really going on here. He's not looking for some weird principle of multiplication, nor does he use his imagination to try to tell you what this text is teaching. Instead, he studies and knows what this text is saying because he's studied and applied himself to the text so that he can rightly teach it to you. 
the, the by the way, the, the contrast could not be starker. So let me uh, kill the music. Without any further ado, here is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, the Good Shepherd Feeds His Flock. Here we go. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 6, reading from verse 30 to the end, to rather verse 44. Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. This, of course, follows on from and concludes what happened when the Lord Jesus sent out his disciples in verse 7, two by two, to teach and to cast out evil spirits. So, Mark chapter 6 and verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitudes saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before him came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude, and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages, and buy themselves bread, for they have had nothing to eat. He answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed them, and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. They took up twelve baskets full of fragments, and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about five thousand men. We trust God to add his blessing the reading of his most holy word. Our text this morning is... Okay, notice, he begins with the biblical text. He reads it for you in context. This is how you do a good sermon, by the way. We continue, sorry. ...found in the section that we read, Mark chapter 6 and verse 34. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude... It was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. This section of Mark's Gospel contains the account of probably one of the best known miracles in the entire Bible. It's the only one of the miracles of Jesus that's found in all four Gospels. 
It's one of, rather one of very few, found in all four Gospels. Usually we find that Matthew, Mark and Luke will record a miracle and then John will not say much about it or anything at all about it. But this is one that's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And that means it's important. Not that the others are not important, but it means it's very important. It's something that contains teaching that God would particularly emphasize to us. And what's important, of course, is that it is teaching. The miracles are all signs. They all point to something beyond the miracle. It is not as is sometimes assumed or even taught by some people that the miracles are ends in themselves but they are teaching, they are acted parables as it were. And we have here first of all peace that is sought. Jesus and the disciples seeking peace. Secondly we have a problem that is solved. And thirdly a provision that is supplied. So we have a peace that is sought a problem that is solved and a provision that is supplied. So first we have the peace that is sought. Jesus and his apostles. The apostles have been sent out in verse 7 of the chapter to verse 13 which recalls that they went out, verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent and they cast out many demons who were anointed with oil, many who were sick there were many who were sick and healed them. They did their little part of Jesus' mission. They took on briefly, for we're not told how long, whether it was a matter of a few months or even just a few weeks, but for a little while they did something of Jesus' mission. They entered into the work of the Lord Jesus and they come back verse 30 and told him all things both what they had done and what they had taught and you can imagine the excitement, the joy we've done this we've accomplished things we saw the sick being healed we saw demons being cast out we taught people what you told us to teach and there is a certain naivety here that is so charming and so refreshing that these men come to the Lord Jesus who knows all things, remember, who knows precisely what has happened and they're so eager to tell him. But Jesus recognises that what they need is rest as well as an opportunity to share and they need to be taught, you see, there is a, no point of time in which Christians can say, well that's it, I've received all the teaching I need, and now all I need to do is minister. Can't even say that, the man is a pastor. It's important for pastors to have time to be taught, to sit at Jesus' feet, and to learn, because we are all disciples of Christ. And a disciple is a learner, and a lifelong learner. Whatever we do for Jesus, is based on what we receive from him. Whatever teaching we give as Christians in the various positions, vocations, callings we have as parents, 
as grandparents and so on, as co-workers. Whenever someone comes to us asking something about the Bible, whatever teaching we do is based upon the teaching we receive of Christ day by day. And so Jesus said to the disciples, come and rest. Come aside by yourself, deserted place, and rest a while. There must always be an opportunity to rest, to sit at Jesus' feet and to learn. And so he takes them to another part of Galilee, away from the city where they were, which was probably that one of the cities called Bethsaida, there were at least two Bethsaidas. The word Bethsaida means fish town, and you can imagine that in a fishing area there would be a number of towns that were known as fish town, with obviously another word added. There was a Bethsaida Julius, and another Bethsaida was just called Bethsaida. And so they left Bethsaida sailed along the coast and perhaps the winds were against them but for some reason when they arrived they've been preceded by these people who had come and wanted to hear Jesus and there is that disappointment for the disciples they did not receive what they wanted to receive which was that time alone, but we see the compassion of Christ. Instead of being annoyed that these people have cut into his time with the disciples. Sorry to break in. <clears throat> just want to point something out. I want to highlight it. Who is Pastor Charmley preaching about? He's not preaching about the apostles. He's not preaching about you. He's not preaching about me. It's as if every point that he needs to make really is about Christ, how important he is, how we need to be taught by him, how compassionate he is. He's focusing on Jesus because the gospel of Mark is about Jesus. So what Pastor Charmley is, is doing here is exactly the right way to handle this text. We continue. These people are making these unreasonable demands upon his time because they were. There were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. Even the meals were interrupted in Bethsaida and so going away they had hoped to have some time to rest, to pray. But instead of being disappointed Jesus looks out upon them and is moved with compassion because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. Now they were supposed to have shepherds. Because it, the priests were supposed to be the shepherds of God's people. The priests had been commissioned by God to teach the people, as well as to perform the various sacrifices that the law commanded. And the priests and the Levites were supposed to be teaching the people the law, teaching them the Bible, teaching them all the things that God had said, and they weren't. Many of the priests have, certainly the leading priests in Jerusalem, have been caught up in a, a system of teaching called Sadduceeism, which was an attempt to bring Judaism as close as possible to Greek and Roman religion. 
And so it's very speculative, very intellectual. And there was nothing there for the people. They were not teaching the Bible. They were trying to fit the Bible into somebody else's categories, into the Roman categories. The Pharisees who had tried to take up that role had become, most of them, very legalistic. And instead of teaching people of the grace of God, the love of God, they were teaching people, you must do this, this, this and this to be saved. The people had no real guidance with Pharisees and Sadducees fighting each other. They had no real protection and they needed a shepherd. And so Jesus teaches them in the wilderness. He began to teach them many things. We need a teacher. The first thing we need of Christ is teaching, not a coach. You know what a coach does with a football team or any other sports team? A coach teaches you how to play. The coach's aim is to have the best team there is, but the coach is all about training. Do, do, and do. The coach teaches you how to do things. Jesus does not simply teach us how to do things. He teaches us what God has done in himself. He teaches us what God has done, what God is doing. Christianity is not a matter of do this, do that, do the other thing. It's a matter of God has done what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God has done by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin and has condemned sin in the flesh Jesus teaches us what is done not what we have to do and he guides us for life the sheep always need a shepherd sheep never come to a point where they are independent in fact of course the great fault, the great sin that brought about the downfall of Adam and Eve and the whole human race was the idea you will be like gods no longer needing God we need Christ our good shepherd day by day and then we come to the problem that is solved the problem was of course it was a long day teaching and as it came towards evening the sun sinking towards the horizon the disciples come to Jesus and say this is a deserted place and the hour and already the hour is late it's getting late there's no nowhere to buy food send them away they were concerned for the health of the people they were concerned these people needed to be fed this is of course a situation, a subsistence economy, a situation where people did not as a rule have an awful lot to eat anyway so missing a couple of meals might be serious if you've walked all the way out into the wilderness they needed food and the disciples understood that they had a care and concern for the people 
But what they did not recognize was that Jesus could meet that need. They saw the need but did not think Christ can meet it. They saw the problem but did not see that Christ can supply. They suppose that in some respect it's reasonable to see why they supposed it. They suppose that Jesus was a great teacher, was a healer, but that he could not provide food. Now of course you have to say, well if Jesus can bring a dead girl back to life, what can't he do? Raising the dead is the ultimate miracle. But they didn't recognize this. And so they say, what are we to do? What are we going to do? And Jesus points them, first of all, to their own inability. You cannot feed them. But he doesn't say, straight of all, when you can't do it, he says to them, you give them something to eat. Not because he thinks they can, but because he wants them to recognize that they can't. There are many times when God asks us a question, when he knows the answer. When God tells us to do something, not because we can, but because we can't. Because he wants us to recognize that we can't. The whole of the law, in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments and so on. The whole point of that is not that we can do it, but that we can't do it. And it's to drive us to recognize that we cannot please God. Because it's so easy if we are allowed to engage in, in woolly, fuzzy thinking for us to think that we're doing alright. Until God says, well look, this is my standard, this is my law, are you doing it? And then the answer comes back, well no. And the answer to the fact that we're not doing the law is not, well, try harder. Because however hard we try, not the labour of my hands can fulfil thy law's demands. As the hymn writer puts it, Could my tears forever flow, could my zeal no respite know, all for sin could not atone, thou must save, and thou alone. It drives us to see our inability. And they look at it and they say, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Now, as I said, 200 denarii worth of bread is a, that's a lot of money. It's unfortunate that the King James chose to use penny to translate denarius because a penny has come to be a very tiny amount of money. A denarius was a day's wages for a labouring man. It was a, it was a fair day's wages. It's a fair amount of money. Not a lot, but enough to be fair to pay someone that much for a day's work. So 200 days' work, days' wages. And even that would not have got enough food for everyone to be filled because we're told there were 5,000 men and elsewhere we are told that there were, beside that, women and children, probably at least another 5,000, quite probably more than that. So you're looking at at least 10,000 people to be fed. And the disciples cannot do it. The problem is to be solved, not by them, but by the Lord Jesus. 
they are pointed to the fact they can do nothing without me he says you can do nothing and that's the point and so we come to the provision that is supplied Jesus commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass now we, we are, we must be reminded here given the shepherd imagery of the 23rd psalm most of us I'm sure know the, the Scots metrical version the the Lord's my shepherd I'll not want he makes me down to lie in pastures green he leadeth me the quiet waters by the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want in other words I shall lack nothing he makes me to lie down in green pastures and here is Jesus the good shepherd who has identified himself as the one who will shepherd these sheep who have no shepherd making them to sit down on the green grass which incidentally tells us this was spring because in that part of the world the climate is such that the grass is only green in the spring when the summer comes the grass withers up and is generally brown and also the fact that it talks about the green grass this little detail shows us that this is not somebody making things up this is an eyewitness account and Christ himself is the provider he is the one who finding out that there are these five loaves as I said they're really little bread rolls the sort of thing that we might think was a little snack if you had enough filling in it but certainly they are not the sort of thing that you would really divide between two people per loaf let alone more than that they are nothing nothing at all so in fact merely stating what we have shows just how inadequate it is but Christ is the provider he is the one and although it seems absolutely nothing at all he looked up to heaven blessed and broke the loaves and gave them his disciples a set before the people he breaks and he goes on breaking until everybody has had enough and to spare and what is gathered up twelve baskets full of fragments the baskets of course would have been brought by the disciples in the boat that they came in twelve baskets full of food not big baskets but twelve whole baskets from five loaves and two fishes which would not have been enough to fill one of those baskets so what does it all mean? it certainly does not mean that we are to look for miraculous food the apostle John tells us that some of the people having been fed thought well this is a wonderful thing if this man Jesus can give us free food to eat we don't need to work if this man will give us free food then we will make him our king because we want a king who will allow us to be idle all day and will just give us free food he's not saying that at all 
Nor is he saying that we are to look for miraculous provision for the world's hunger. There is food enough and to spare in the world after all. Where we see these awful famines on the news, there is plenty of food that could be brought to feed these people. And often the famines themselves are the result of tyranny and dictatorship. The result of mismanagement, the result of human sin. And of bad government. He's not saying that either. No, this is a statement that first of all that the good shepherd is able to feed his flock. The good shepherd supplies the needs of his people. In John's Gospel, when the people came to him, saying, in effect, we want you to feed us with free food day by day, Jesus pointed them away from that and pointed out that there was something else that all this was indicating. He says, do not labour for the food which perishes, but the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man has, will give you, because God the Father set his seal on him. And then the people said, well, what shall we do to, that we may work the work of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And the people went on to say, well, what miracle will you do so that we may believe in you. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, the bread that came down from heaven. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What miracle will you do? We know. You give us more free food. See the, the selfishness here. But Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Pause there for a second. <clears throat> I hate interrupting these sermons that are good. Okay, so here's the idea. Notice Pastor Charlie pointed out that Jesus is the one providing this food. And, and that he was the one who broke the loaves and kept breaking. There was, he didn't fill in any gaps and basically say that, you know, that uh, Peter was out there with a, with a loaf and basically saying, take a small piece, take a small piece, and then it multiplies in his hand. None of that nonsense. Jesus is the one who's supplying this. And now he's connecting the rest of the dots in the story that point us to the fact that this miracle points us to Jesus as the true bread of life, the bread of heaven. See, those who try, try to twist this story, like Robert Morris, what they end up doing is Xing Jesus out, and they end up making this all about something you're supposed to do. We're not supposed to do something with this text. We're supposed to believe something as a result of this text, that Jesus Christ is the true bread from heaven. That's what's really going on here. And that he truly is the one who supplies and meets all of our needs. See, that's what's going on in this text. Pastor Charlie's doing a fantastic job. We continue. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. 
And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and, no, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In other words, Jesus says, you look at that bread that is broken and given and distributed, and you are looking not simply at bread, you are looking at me. You are looking at the one who gives his life. You are looking at the one who dies, who is broken on the tree, on the cross. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. In fact, the Bible records in the book of Exodus, the other the subsequent books of Moses, how all of those who came out of Egypt, except for two men, died in the wilderness. They did not get into the promised land. Their children came into the promised land, but they, because of their sin, because they did not believe God, because they murmured and rebelled, they were left to die in the wilderness because they said, God has brought us and our children out to kill us. They were told, your children will not die in the wilderness, but you will. This, Jesus said, is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. He says, take your minds off the physical bread. Physical bread is important. It was of course the staple food. Most meals consisted of bread and something. It's important. But of course everybody dies in the end. The cemeteries are still filling up. The oldest man in Britain is 110. But within the next 10 years he will die, most likely. 110 is a good age. But how many people reach that age? Only one man in this country has reached that age. And all his, all his childhood friends have died. What matters is the bread that endures to everlasting life. 
Yes, we look at this man who's lived 110 and say, what are the secrets? How can a man live that long? What does he eat? What does he do? Oh, the greatest secret is this. How are we to live forevermore? We are to have a very particular diet. We are to feed on the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith. We are to believe upon his name. That's what all that eating language is about. It's about trusting. Trusting the good shepherd. The bread of God who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We look to the cross. Because there he gave up his life, so that all who believe on him could be saved. He gave up his life for you and for me. He points us to this bread that is his own body, broken on the cross. And this is why, of course, week by week we observe the communion service. Because with that bread and that wine we are pointed to that very cross. To that very bread of heaven on whom we feed. For his bread is food indeed. And we are fed day by day as we believe on the Lord Jesus. Trust in him who died to take away our sin. Who died that we who are dying might live. And I will raise him up. He says on the last day I will raise up all who believe upon my name. We have all seen people whom we loved and knew laid in the grave or cremated. And the great wonder is this. The Christian looks at the grave and says that is not forever. Because the day is coming when all the tombs shall be opened. And those who sleep in the dust of death shall arise. And those who are Christ shall arise to everlasting life. To life that is worthy of the name. To everlasting life with Christ we shall be with him forevermore. And that is what we look forward to. It's not simply going to heaven when you die. That is not the Christian's hope. Now we, the Christian knows we shall be with Christ when we die. Because the Bible says that to die is to be with Christ which is far better. But the hope is this. The great hope is to be raised up on the last day. For God has not made us a soul that happens to be in a body for the moment. God has made us a body and soul. Creatures with two parts. And the two parts make up the whole man. It's not right to say, well, we lay the body in the grave and as someone said at funerals, well, the, the person, should never be said at Christian funerals, the person is not here. No part of the person is here. Another part is not. But on the last day, 
the day of resurrection the two parts shall be united and our bodies shall be made like Christ's glorious body what does that mean we do not fully understand but it means that our bodies shall no longer suffer illness, infirmity, pain and so on our bodies shall not wear out but shall endure for eternity as Christ endures and so that is our hope that as we partake of the bread that came down out of heaven so our bodies will be raised as his body and our souls made clean by his blood and we shall be perfect not in our own works not in what we have done but because of that bread that came down from heaven because of that food of his own flesh and blood that Jesus gives us day by day that we partake that we eat and so we see the good shepherd who gives his life for the flock the one who is all compassion beholding the people there however inconvenient it was he taught them and we think how inconvenient was it to come down to earth from heaven for the son of God to be made man to be made man with infirmities not sin but infirmities he grew up as a little child and he truly developed as a child he was tired, he was thirsty, he was hungry he wept we see him made a little lower than the angels for us what compassion, what divine compassion is that that he came down and of course what compassion is it that the father has that he sent his son and the spirit has that he brings the son to us day by day we see without him we can do nothing we are helpless but he comes he comes to supply our every need and to feed us with his own body and blood and to give to us eternal life I give my sheep he says eternal life and they shall never perish what glory then must we give to Jesus Christ, our good shepherd. Amen. Amen. Do you see the difference? When you preach Christ from his texts that are all about him, it provides comfort, it confronts you with your sins, and gives you hope of eternal life and salvation and a right standing before God. When you ex Christ out, and you make it about some principle you need to apply in order for God to bless you or something like that, there's no assurance. You commit a crime by hijacking the text away from being about Christ, and when you lose Christ, you've lost everything, including, well, your own salvation, comfort, assurance, and all of the blessings of the Father which are given to us freely in Him big difference and i hope you uh, were able to notice that for yourself all right we are at the end of another edition of fighting for the faith 
If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ as vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>